Good morning. I'm going to take your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6 this morning. As you're turning there in your Bibles, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Charles Spurgeon or not. Some of you in the room probably know the name Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a preacher in England in the 1800s. Uh, he's a very famous preacher. Actually, he has been given the nickname the Prince of Preachers because he was so eloquent in his preaching. Spurgeon would regularly preach to over 10,000 people at a time and upwards of 20,000 people at other times. And that's probably a remarkable thing to think about. That this was the time before microphones and PA systems and, and things of that sort. Spurgeon was probably the first uh, pastor of the first mega church. His church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Spurgeon was pastor at, sat 5,000 people, and he had a standing room for another 1,000. Today, we have over 3,600 of his sermons in print form. You could Google them, and you could read them later on today if you wanted to. As I was looking over his sermons, what I discovered is a high number of his sermons are based off of one verse. Can you imagine that? A one-verse sermon. I have never preached a one-verse sermon in my life. Now, as I was thinking about this, I can imagine Spurgeon would probably have no problem preaching a sermon on, say, John 3.16, right? There's enough in that verse that you could probably spend a whole sermon on a verse like that. But I can't imagine at all preaching some of the one-verse sermons that Charles Spurgeon preached on. I just want to read a couple of these for you to know. This is what Spurgeon would preach on, on, on any given Sunday. Once he preached a sermon on Genesis 16:8, which says, And the angel of the Lord said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from, and where will you go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarah. Now, that's an interesting sermon topic right there, is it not? He once preached a sermon on Psalm 1026, which says, I am like an owl of the desert. Once he preached a sermon on Genesis 19.15, which says, When the morning arose, then the angels urged Lot. One Sunday, he preached a sermon on Jeremiah 4.20, which says, Suddenly... Are my tents spoiled and my curtains in a moment? And for all of you farmers in the room, this is for you. Once Spurgeon preached a sermon on Proverbs 11.26, which says, He that withholds corn, the people shall curse him, but blessed shall be upon the head of him that sells it. Can I get an amen? Larry, I don't know where you are. That one's for you. That's for you, Larry. Now, Spurgeon has to be the prince of preachers if he can figure out a way to preach sermons on verses like these, right? I mean, I would find that extremely difficult to do. Now, you may be wondering this morning, am I getting ready to preach my very first one-verse sermon? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that question is no. I still don't get the privilege to do that yet this morning. Because if you looked at the bulletin uh, yet this morning, you know where we're going, Instead of preaching a one-verse sermon, I am preaching a 71-verse sermon. Whoa, that's right. Uh, so buckle up. Uh, here we go. We're going on quite a ride this morning because this passage that we're going to look at is we're going to look at the life and death of Stephen and for the cause of Christ. 
This is a passage that was really difficult to figure out. How do you break up a passage like this? So we're going to go knock it out all in one swoop this morning. And what we're going to do, though, is we're going to take this passage and we're going to look at it in three sections. One, we're going to call the setup. That is in 6, 8 through 7, 1. Two is the message in 7, 2 to 53. And then three is the result, which is in 7, 54 to 8, Three. Now, I'm going to be merciful for you. I'm not going to make you stand while I read all 71 verses at once. I'm going to kind of break it up as we go through the passage here. But before we do that, would you just pause with me to pray for a moment? Father God, man, I, I need your help this morning. And I ask that you would guide and direct our time now. I know we're going to cover a lot of ground and there's a lot to see, and there's a lot to hear, and there's a lot to take in. So I pray that you be with us. Help me to say what I need to say and not say what I don't need to say. And help us to hear and learn and glean from your word this morning. We recognize we need your help. So we ask you would be gracious to us and come now and help us. We pray this in your name. Amen. First, we see the setup. The setup is in 6, 8 to 7, 1. If you want to follow along in your Bibles with me, it says this. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, of those from Sicily and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak, to speak words against his holy place and the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses has delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? All right, so in the setup, we learn a few things here. First, we learn about Stephen. Verse 8 tells us that Stephen is full of both grace and power, which is an amazing combination. It means he is full of kindness and that he is full of strength. This grace and power results in Stephen doing lots of signs and wonders. He's performing miracles in front of the people. In verse 10, we learn that Stephen is also full of wisdom, which we see has been given to him by the Holy Spirit. And that Stephen is so wise that no one can refute him. So we see that the Holy Spirit is indeed working mightily in Stephen, right? That he's full of grace and mercy, strength, wisdom. All of this is from the Holy Spirit. But just because the Spirit is working in Stephen doesn't mean that everything is going Stephen's way and that everything is just running smoothly. There is opposition that is coming against him. That's what we also see in this setup. The opposition in these religious leaders who are disputing him. In verse 11, it tells us that since these religious leaders can't answer to the wisdom with which Stephen is speaking, they need to come up with another plan as a means to defeat Stephen. And notice how much this sounds like what happened to Jesus at his arrest and his crucifixion. They recruit men out of, to help them out with their cause. 
And then they stir up the crowd, it tells us. They see Stephen, and they bring him before the religious leaders, and they bring false witnesses before the council with false accusations against Stephen. And those false accusations against Stephen really revolve around just two things. One is they, that Stephen is preaching against the temple, and two is that Stephen is preaching against the customs of Moses, which means that Stephen is being falsely accused of speaking against God's law and the place where God's presence dwells in the temple. These are serious accusations that are coming against Stephen because the religious leaders are basically saying, you are preaching against how we view salvation. That salvation comes by keeping the law and bringing sacrifices to the temple. For them, this is what salvation was all about. Yet Stephen is face, facing this vicious assault from man with the approval of God. I think that's what's going on in verse 15 where it says Stephen's face was like an angel. I don't think it means that in this moment that Stephen looked like a precious mo moment ornament. I think what it means is that God's glory and blessing and approval are shining and is radiantly showing through on the face of Stephen in the midst of all all the opposition that is coming against him. And that leads us now to our second section, which is the message that Stephen delivers in 2 through 53. This is actually the longest recorded sermon in all the book of Acts. Isn't that interesting? It's not from Peter. It's not from Paul. It's from Stephen. And the question becomes, well, why is this message by Stephen so long? Stephen is taking the time because he wants to say several things here to us this morning. One is that he is going to speak against the things that he is being falsely accused of. That are things about the temple and about the law. And Stephen is going to let his accusers know that he clearly and biblically understands both the temple and the law. And Stephen is going to do more than that, though, is he's also going to bring his own accusations against his accusers and showing where they are the ones that have actually gone wrong. And Stephen is mainly going to do this in three ways. One, in the life of Abraham. Two, in the life of Joseph. And thirdly, in the life of Moses before he brings his concluding points. So we're going to look at these accounts one at a time. First, we're going to look at Abraham. He unpacks the life of Abraham in 2 through 8. Where Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land which you are now living Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God sp spoke in this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Here's what I think what Stephen is wanting to say about Abraham 
one is that God's presence, the, the glory of God, it says his presence was appearing to Abraham when Abraham is outside the promised land in Mesopotamia. God's glory is not limited to one location of the promised land and where the temple is. Stephen is already refuting the accusations that are coming against him. Stephen also sees that God's relationship with Abraham is based on God and God's promises to Abraham that Abraham was to trust in and to believe in. There's been no law given yet at this time. Here we see a clear biblical picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. It is God who reaches out to Abraham first. It is God who calls Abraham to himself, showing us that salvation is based on God and God's doing in our lives and not our law-keeping. This is what Stephen is saying here. Stephen is speaking against an idea that salvation is based on your ability to keep the law. Instead, salvation is based on God's working in Abraham's life. And then we move on to Joseph. We see now he starts talking about Joseph in 9 through 16, where he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into, slave, into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob and his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Jacob went down to Egypt and died, and he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of, Her of Hermon in Shechem. Now, Stephen brings out a few different things about Joseph and the story of Joseph. The first thing that Stephen highlights is the brother's rejection of Joseph in verse 9. This theme of rejection is something we're going to see over and over again in Stephen's message. But even though Joseph is rejected by man, God is with him, as verse 9 tells us, and God is with Joseph while he is in Egypt. Again, God's presence is not limited to a specific location or specific place like the temple. Joseph is in Egypt and God is there too. And Joseph's relationship with God is based on God's working in his life. It just says God is with Joseph. The law still has not been given. But there's something else about Joseph we want to see here. That the one who is rejected by his brothers ends up being the one who is their deliverer. The famine is in the land, right? Jacob and his family of 75, they are in need of food. They need this provision. They need a deliverer. And the only one who can save them is Joseph, the one whom they had rejected years earlier. That the rejected one ends up being the saving one. Then Stephen moves on to, the, to Moses, now our third person, in 17 through 44. I'm actually going to pick it up in verse 23, where he says this about Moses. When he was 40 years old... 
It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became a father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. When the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey them and thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to idols and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. So here's the thing I think Stephen is bringing out about Moses. Once again, the people are in need of deliverance. This time they need deliverance from their slavery in Egypt. And another deliverer for the people has, has risen up, right? This time it is Moses. But Moses also is a rejected deliverer, as verse 25 tells us. Which is interesting to see in this moment when Moses killed that Egyptian, that this was the moment that Moses was ready actually to lead the people out of slavery and deliver them from the Egyptians. But once again, the people of Israel reject their deliverer, this time in Moses. So Moses flees Egypt, ends up in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God appears to Moses, far away from the promised land. And God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. Holy ground in a foreign land. 
This gives us this idea of the holy of holies, of the inner temple of the court, and yet it's here in this wilderness is this holy moment because God's presence is there. Because there is no way you can limit God's presence. And in verse 35, what do we see? Once again, this rejected deliverer in Moses is now going to go back to Egypt and bring the people who had rejected him out of slavery and bring them the deliverance they need. Again, this salvation is given to Moses. This salvation is given to the people before the law had come to them. The gospel order is still the same. But in verse 38, the law finally does come, right? The oracles of Moses have been delivered. And what do the people do? Immediately in the next verse, in verse 39, it tells us that they reject the law that was just given to them by Moses, and they don't obey the law. Stephen is highlighting here that the people who actually covet this law so highly have this long history of not obeying it. But not only that, not only do the people not obey the law, but they actually turn to idols and they worship other gods instead of the one true God. So not only were the people in the wilderness rejecting God's law, they were rejecting God himself. Just another rejection by the people. And then Stephen quickly in his sermon weaves his way through Joshua and David and Solomon Reminding them that even though Solomon built the temple for God, that Solomon realized in saying, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hand. That's what verses 49 and 50 tell us. If you want to look in this, these verses, God says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place where you rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is saying, did not my hand actually make this temple? What Stephen is doing here is he's telling the people that they have overestimated the value and the importance of the temple. God is not limited to a building. He is too big for that. And after this overview of the Old Testament, Stephen brings down the hammer on the people in verses 51 to 53. Look at what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. He calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears because they're always rejecting the message of God's deliverance. This people is trademarked by the ability to not hear and their continued rejection of that message, right? They've rejected, what have we seen? They've rejected Joseph, and they've rejected Moses. They've rejected the law. They've rejected God. They've rejected his prophets. They've rejected the righteous one who is Jesus, and they've rejected the Holy Spirit, which I think is ironic, right? I mean, what is one of the things that the Holy Spirit has come to do? 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6 that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell or to tabernacle or to temple within us. And these religious leaders who value the temple so much yet reject the idea that the Holy Spirit could actually come and dwell and tabernacle in them to do what the law could not do, which is to obey. So Stephen, who is being accused of rejecting the temple and rejecting the law, turns the tables on his accusers and is actually showing the religious leaders that they are the ones who reject God's law and they're the ones that reject the true temple, who is Jesus, over and over again. Because they have been rejecting the message of Jesus. They are rejecting the message that Jesus is the one who has come to fulfill the law. To do what they could never do with the law. That Jesus has come to deliver them to, from the curse of the law in which they are enslaved to. That Jesus is the temple. That Jesus is the place where God's glory most brightly and gloriously shines forth. These religious leaders have rejected Jesus over and over and over again. And I think this is a call this morning. If you are sitting here this morning and you have rejected the message of Jesus over and over and over, can I encourage you this morning, don't be like the religious leaders here. Stop rejecting the message of Jesus and see that Jesus has come to deliver and redeem and save you from the slavery of sin that you are in. And then that leads us to the third part of our passage here, which is the result. That is found in 754 to 83, which says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a uh, great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison." So here's what we can see of the result of this message. This message of Stephen does not sit well with the religious leaders or the crowd. They are seriously ticked off, to put it mildly, at Stephen. It says that they're enraged and they're grinding their teeth at the message that he has delivered. And then Stephen just adds fuel to the fire, right? 
I mean, he looks up to heaven, and he's been graced with this glorious view of what he sees in heaven, and he describes what he has seen in verse 56, right? Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is very similar to what Jesus says in his trial before his death in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, where it says, The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. It's that phrase right there that gets Jesus killed. Because Jesus makes a deity claim about himself. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, which is a clear picture of the Christ. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am that one. And it's the same phrase that's going to get Stephen killed as well. Because Stephen is also making a deity claim about Christ to those who are around him. But Stephen just said it just slightly. I don't know if you picked this up or not. Jesus said that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the throne. Stephen sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's slight, but it is significant. That even though Stephen may be rejected by man, that in this moment, Stephen is being accepted by Jesus. Jesus is Stephen's advocate. He is standing for him, and Stephen is being vindicated by Jesus. Just as Jesus says in Luke 12, 8, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. I believe that's happening in a real-life moment for Stephen right here. And once again, what do we see the crowd doing? They are rejecting God. They are rejecting the message of deliverance by Jesus that Stephen is declaring. Because of this statement that Stephen makes about Jesus, it sends the crowd over the edge, right? They cry out with a loud voice. They stop up their ears, which is actually a great picture of the uncircumcised ears that they have that Stephen talked about. They rush him, they cast him out of the city, and they stone him. And as the people are hurtling stones at Stephen, Stephen does two more things that are just like Jesus in his death. First, he asks for Jesus to receive his spirit. Just like what Jesus did on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now Stephen is doing the same thing. But Stephen asks for Jesus to receive his spirit, which is different, right? But what Stephen is doing is he's also making a deity claim about who Jesus is, equating that Jesus can do what God can do. And while they're stoning him, Stephen is extending uh, forgiveness to his executioners just as Jesus did when he extended forgiveness on the cross as well. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Stephen dies. And we see two things from the result of Stephen's death. First, we see Saul for the first time in the book of Acts. And we get a pretty good picture of what, Paul, what Saul is like before his conversion. He's approving the death of Stephen, and he also is now on a war path against the church because he wants to completely obliterate it. He is out to do whatever it takes to destroy the church. He's going to go house to house and throw men and even women into jail. It does not matter to him, just as long as he stops the church. 
And we see the result of this persecution on the church that is led by Saul is that the church in Jerusalem is scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, this is an interesting verse, right? Because before this verse, we have seen great growth in the church as we've been going through the book of Acts. We see the church has grown from 3,000 to 5,000 to even more than that. But as good as that growth is that's taken place, it has only taken place in Jerusalem. Remember back in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, And you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the church is doing a great job being a witness in Jerusalem up to this point, but they have neglected the rest of Jesus' command of being witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So I don't think it's a coincidence that in Acts 8.1, it mentions that the believers are now specifically being scattered to Judea and Samaria. I think this is showing us that God is using the persecution of the church in order to fulfill his plan for the church in expanding the church. I mean, this is what we can see here in this passage this morning is that persecution never wins. Yes, persecution may be hard, but persecution never prevails. Persecution does not prevail with Stephen, right? Because the crowd, even though they may be able to take Stephen's life from him, they cannot take away Stephen's Savior from him. Stephen may be dead, but Stephen is with Jesus. And that is the biggest win of Stephen's life. And the persecution does not prevail with the church either. Yes, men and women are getting thrown into jail. It is hard. But this does not stop the church from growing. Actually, the persecution is what causes the church to flourish even more and to grow and to spread as we're going to continue to see in the book of Acts. There's no persecution that can stand against the church or stop the church. Actually, persecution was the means by which God grew the church. Because the church will always win. The church has grown for 2,000 years and will continue to grow. There's nothing in our current context, in our nation, in our world today that will come against and stop the church, no matter what persecution may come our way. Church will win. But I think there's also some things that we can see here in the life of Stephen this morning. One is that Stephen does everything right in this passage, right? He doesn't do anything wrong. He's full of the Spirit, he's full of wisdom and grace and power. And yet, just because Stephen does everything right does not guarantee that everything in life is going to be easy or that everything in life is going to go our way. Life is going to be hard. Persecution, trials, suffering will come. But through it all, Jesus will always be good, no matter what. He is always good. Jesus is always worth suffering for because Jesus is always standing for you. 
I think there's another thing here that we can learn from the life of Stephen this morning. I don't know if you noticed, I tried to bring this out, that so many things in the life of Stephen uh, are similar to the things of life of Christ as well. I wondered, why is that? Why are there so many similarities here between the life of Stephen and the life of Jesus? And I've also been wondering, as I've just been thinking about this passage, is how does Stephen do all that he's able to do? I mean, Stephen has to know that the things that he is saying in front of this crowd and the religious leaders could get him killed. And yet he says it all anyway. He doesn't hold back. And I believe that the answers to all these questions is that Stephen loved Jesus. Stephen loved Jesus so much that the heart of Christ just oozed out of him. It just was naturally flowing out of him. The things that he did, the things that he said reflected Christ because he just loved Christ so well that the result is is that Christ was displayed in his life. Stephen loved Jesus so much that it didn't matter what happened to him. Stephen faced persecution, I believe, is because he just loved Jesus so much. Man, and I think that's the key for us this morning. If you are sitting here thinking, man, how can I stand for Christ no matter what? Can I encourage you? Love Jesus more. It's not that complicated. It's to see Jesus and to know Jesus and to be so consumed with him and so in awe of him and so thankful for him that what naturally grows is this affection and love for him to see all that Jesus is and all that he has done on our behalf. I mean, spending time this Advent season that starts today dwelling with Christ and spending much time with Christ. When you spend time with Jesus, what will happen is a grow of a love for Jesus. And that when Jesus becomes your greatest treasure on this earth, when you value Jesus more than anything that you own of this earth, It frees you up to lose everything that you own on this earth because you still have your greatest treasure in Jesus. And you're okay with losing it all because you still got the best. Jesus, that it can never be taken away from you. But Stephen is also full of the Holy Spirit. We see this mentioned three times in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. And I believe this, that you can't stand for Jesus on your own power when the pressure is on. You need the power of the Spirit working in you. I mean, if you're sitting here thinking this morning, man, there's no way I could stand the way Stephen stood, you're absolutely right. There's no way Stephen could stand the way Stephen did unless the Spirit was working in him. So I would encourage you this morning, pray for the Spirit to do a work in you, to do the things that you know you can't do on your own. That's why we pray, and that's why we say, God, I need your help. I can't do this. I'm pretty fearful. I don't know how to be bold. Will you help me be bold for you? I'm even scared praying this prayer in this moment. Help me to be bold. Work in me that which I can't do on my own. And the Spirit will begin to work and move and change you and do the things that only He can do in your life. 
pray for the Spirit, saying, man, I want to love Jesus more, I want to treasure Him more, but I don't know how. Pray and ask the Spirit, say, Spirit, open my eyes and, and so that I can see more of Jesus and the beauty and the worth and the value of who Jesus is so that I can see Him more so that I would love Him more. This is our dependence on the Spirit to help us to be bold, to help us to stand, and to help us to love. To be in prayer, to be in the Word, to be about worshiping Jesus. And I would encourage you, in this Advent season, worship Jesus much. Because as you do these things, your knowledge and your affections for Jesus will grow. So we're going to end our time this morning with a responsive song in order to help us grow in our love for Jesus. We're going to sing the song, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. And what I hope with this is, is this is a responsive song that we can sing and declare and grow our affections for Christ. That we can joyfully say, yes, Christ is our hope in life, but Christ is also our hope in death and well, and in all things and in all times, we are going to joyfully trust in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, help us in this moment to see and savor Jesus more. I pray that even as we sing this song and we declare Christ our hope in life and death, that it will help us raise our affections for Jesus. And that not only, we would, not only would we sing these words, but we would declare them to be true in our lives, that we would know it and feel it and believe it. And that we would be a people who love you so much that we would stand for you no matter what comes because we know that we are loved and approved by you. We pray this in your name. Amen.